I miss a green, for example. I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg lie. I'm about ready to run off the golf course. Welcome to the Fried Egg Podcast. I'm Garrett Morrison, and today we're talking about the architecture of golf clubhouses. My guest is Alex War, who's a designer and digital artist with a degree in architecture from the University of Texas, and he is the lead designer of the clubhouse at the Tree Farm, which is a new golf course project in Aiken, South Carolina, headed up by the PGA Tour pro Zach Blair. If you've been following the Fried Egg for a while, you've probably heard about the Tree Farm, Tom Doak routed the course, Kai Golby designed and built the holes, and based on the photos that Andy Johnson just took there, it's all starting to look pretty cool. So I'm excited to pick Alex's brain about the Tree Farm project, but also more generally about the way that clubhouses are designed. I think there's probably something that we as fans of golf architecture can learn from building architecture. There's a lot of differences between the two, obviously, but also some significant similarities, and Alex, as someone who designs structures for a living and likes to geek out about golf courses, is the ideal person to put those two subjects together. So with that, here is Alex War. So Alex War, why don't we start with some storytelling? How did you get involved with the Tree Farm project? Yeah, it's a funny story to tell on this podcast, too, because I think really part of it starts with this podcast. Um, after finishing architecture school, I graduated, moved to Houston, uh, and started to play golf again after putting the clubs away for about five years. And in that time, found podcasts like The Fried Egg and No Laying Up. That's how I found out about Zach Blair and The Buck Club and TBC and all of that started to follow along and learn about golf course architecture for the first time. And I thought, how cool that this guy is really trying to build something. He and I are similar ages. Um, and, you know, as I got deeper into understanding golf course architecture, I realized there was a lot of overlap between what we do in the world of building architecture and golf course architecture. So essentially, I Twitter DM'd Zach one time when he was asking if anybody wanted to get involved. And um, we hit it off. And I just said, hey, I would love to be involved helping you think about, you know, the buildings at the same level that you're thinking about the golf course so that it's this totally holistic experience. And so that was maybe 2018, 2017, late 2017, 2018. And then here we are, you know, breaking ground on the tree farm uh, in the next couple of months. So a wild ride. So you're now 29 or 30, right? 20, 29. Yeah, 29. Okay. So if this was a few years ago, you were pretty young when you just pitched Zach Blair on this, what, what kind of experience did you have that, you know, kind of made you confident I can, you know, execute the design of a clubhouse or, or some golf buildings? Yeah, it was probably an irrational confidence at the time. Uh, I think <laughs> I was 25 when we met, but, you know, I think what I brought to the table was a golf background that, I just felt like what I had learned in school and my professional experience today, which was not a ton, but I had had various internships and 
was working at a firm here in Houston. And, you know, people always ask me, like, what do you specialize in? And my goal in school and in professional life was never to specialize. Like, the beauty of architecture is, like, it's a way of thinking and problem solving. And so then I always thought, you know, when I learned about Zach's project, I thought I would love to do a clubhouse. Like, it's a marriage of essentially my two passions. And so I think my main confidence came from knowing and having a strong golf IQ and golf background and being able to say, I don't think that that is normal within the world of architecture and essentially tell him that I could, I could bring an understanding to both because I think I was looking at the typology of a clubhouse as a whole and thinking that there are these sort of surface level connections that are made, but it, it, it becomes pretty evident that a lot of the times uh, the buildings are not designed by golfers. They're designed by people who understand golfers as like a concept or a, um, they understand it on paper, but not necessarily like the rich sort of history and tradition and flow of everything, right? Like you can learn that stuff, but there's like an experience, especially to the buildings that are coming out now with new developments where it's almost like a rethink of the typology. We're not building necessarily like a traditional uh, country club clubhouse at the tree farm. It's something that's new, right? Like it's this sort of national membership golf trip golf focused almost resort where you're on site but it's not it's just golf focused right and so and my pitch to him was not that i would be the best or i would bring the best building but that i would bring a building that was about supporting the golf um, because the typology of a clubhouse has an interesting relationship to golf in that golf can exist completely without it it's a it's a purely supporting role but it um, it can elevate the experience or it can be a non-factor or it can sort of detract from the experience. And so the idea is to to produce something that's supporting in a way that it elevates the experience. So tell me about your initial pitch to, to Zach. What type of clubhouse did you propose to him or were you just sort of talking about ideas like, like we've been talking about right now? We talked about a few ideas and then he had a site in Utah that I kind of got a little info on and found on Google earth and he had a rough routing. And so I put together like a schematic proposal essentially of some floor plans and some diagrams and some perspectives. Um, so and, it was and this like, was the buck club. This was the, the Utah project. Yeah. And this would have been 2018. And so I, we had just been talking over Twitter and I started to do this work sort of in my free time because, you know, architects were like, crazy and we never turn it off and uh, I started to play golf in my free time but I used to just work in my free time do like competitions or renderings or something um, so this is what I was doing in my free time and I essentially put together a proposal that was pretty specific it, you know he didn't give me a program or anything and say it needs to be this big or that but I just started to develop something of what a modern clubhouse could look like in modern in the sense of just like contemporary thinking, not necessarily like modernism, right? It wasn't all white and clean lines or something, but um, just in the way that I was thinking about it. And, and that really manifests itself in like a place-based sort of site-specific solution. That's what I, what I, that's the work that I try to do is like, it's not about a certain style. It's not about a certain desire to impose something. It's about looking at the place and responding and making something site specific. So the building was sort of like this 
uh, long, thin building that bent in a few ways to talk to a few views. And it was just a very simple, like, gable shape that resonated with some of the, like, barns in the area, you know, but it isn't a barn. It's not about that. It was, that was just sort of a familiar form. And then it used, you know, local stone or something like that. It was like ideas like that that were architectural, but they weren't. Uh, and they were specific in that they are about being resonant with place, but it wasn't like, you know, we didn't have a full CD set or something. It was, it was just some plans and some diagrams and a few perspectives. And I drove to San Antonio and met him at the Valero at that time. I don't know what they call it now, but the, the PJ tour event in uh, San Antonio. It's at a different course now, but it's still the Valero. Yeah. Or maybe yeah. it's not at a different course. I don't yeah, know. It's at that resort. Um, it was, it was so wild, you know, because it had just been, it was like taking one of those online community Twitter relationships into the real world. And it was also like me skipping work to like drive over and hope he made the cut to like present him with all this work I had done. And to his credit, Zach, like he he's super sharp and he like totally got the parallels between designing a good golf hole and designing a good building and how they should both sort of respond to place and land and how the thinking is very similar. And, you know, um, I don't know if he was thinking about that before meeting me, but after meeting me, he was like, for sure, that's what we should do. Like, you're kind of, you know, let's go on this ride together. And, you know, all credit to him. It was a few years later, of course, when we're like actually starting a project, but just a ton of credit to him because, you know, I think it would have made a lot of people more comfortable and it made potentially more sense to hire somebody else with older and more experience. But I think he and I had this sort of special relationship where we're we were both saying, look, we're young and we love this and we'll pour our life into it. You know, I could I could tell him that I will bring the same level of dedication and passion that you have to the course, to the buildings, you know. And I, I think uh he may have even exceeded his dedication to the course on the buildings. He and I he and I talk a lot. So um we've had a really great time working together. So tell me about the buildings that you ended up designing at the tree farm i know it's hard to put this into words that it's a lot more efficient to look at pictures and there are some pictures available but uh, how would you describe these buildings in words in very plain words i would describe them as simple uh humble uh regional and site-specific more complicated words you know the buildings are they look familiar to people. And so the idea, again, going back to like resonating with something and Zach had pretty strong desires on what he wanted and it was simple and humble and things like that. So we we're very much on the same page from the beginning. Um, but the buildings turned into low country South Carolina buildings. So looking at the rich history of the typology where clubhouses started as homes, essentially farmhouses, and then the first clubhouse uh, at Shinnecock was designed by a residential architect, right? So it was about being an extension of the home. So there's something there in terms of scale and form, and then looking at climate and saying, what are the design strategies for this climate? What are the materials used in the region, right? And so how do we put those things together? And so the buildings are really simple, sort of humble gable shapes with wood siding and deep overhangs and brick walkways. And someone may say, you know, oh, that looks like a sawmill or it looks like a barn or something. And it's not about saying it is a barn that is a pro shop or something. It's about using those, you know, architectural characteristics of the region, the region to make something that is resonant with that, but it's not an, it's not a copy. It's not an imitation of something. So 
And then in general, the clubhouse is quite unique because responding to the topography of the site and the routing, the building got broken into three pieces because, you know, we wanted the bar grill to be really close to the first tee in the 18th green with that sort of ritual and the idea of viewing and things like that. Um, and then, but we didn't want it to be too imposing. And so there was a central spine ridge line running through the property and the routing was done, right? So you work the way that a lot of these places are working now, it's not a residential development or something. So you make the best golf course first, and then you work the buildings around that, right? So I had a lot to respond to in terms of that. And so we knew we would arrive up on this ridge and there was a view over into this sort of bowl of golf looking at 18 and one. And in his routing with Tom, one was a par three. So there's a really unique opportunity there for the viewing and things like that. So just responding to the topography of up on the ridge and getting down to near the first tee, you know, there was this little natural finger of topography. So the building turned into this sort of peace sign shape, which in architecture, you don't want to make triangles very, you know, we don't, we don't do well with triangles. Um, And so in the center of that, instead of dealing with these sort of, you know, simple but complicated geometries, we just decided what if we created sort of like a courtyard or cloister and broke the the building apart where now it's three separate structures. And so one is sort of the arrival and men's locker room, one is the bar grill and the women's locker room, and one is the golf operations, the pro shop and things. And they sort of gather around this courtyard, but they're all related to each other and just very simple buildings. So maybe that was a lot of words in the end, but... Uh, hopefully there's a lot of interesting stuff in there so (laughs) first of all a really specific thing why don't building architects do well with triangles what's the problem with triangles oh it's just a sort of like complicated like spatial you know shape and plan like try to put a chair in the corner of a wedge you know um things like that so if you make those spaces in plan usually we like you try to reserve them for sort of back of house like whether that be mechanical or something you know but what was interesting about this was like it was right at the heart of the building right so there's this weird intersection of three gables almost right at the heart of the building and we could have made like a big atrium or like lobby right and who cares what shape that is but that wasn't really like that's not in the program of this place you know there isn't like this idea about this grand entry or this grand you know dining room or anything it's like much more humble and simple than that and we didn't want to put all the services at the center of the building and so what we decided right we actually put now the landscape at the center of the building by making it into an exterior feature, right? So you bring the landscape into the building and the building is really sort of about viewing the landscape, right? Whether that be the natural landscape or the golf, right? And sort of dissolving that experience between indoor and outdoor. So it seems like the architecture of the buildings here has a lot to do with the architecture of the golf course. Because we know that, you know, Tom Doak, who routed the course, and Kai Golby, who designed and, and built many aspects of the course, are place-based architects in their own right, right? Their golf courses are responsive to the land. And so was that an important correspondence to make the buildings kind of blend with the style of architecture that you saw out on the course? A hundred percent. And that's why I felt back in 2017, learning about Tom's work and people like that for the first time. And, you know, Bill and Ben and Gil, like via the fried egg, essentially, like I thought, wow, there's a massive resonance here between the work that I do 
in terms of building architecture and the golf. And so why would these things not merge perfectly together, right? And elevate that experience. That was, I mean, that was so crucial. And essentially that relationship is what made the light bulb go off in my head to, you know, reach out to Zach and say, there's a supernatural fit here. And it it is very much responding to the place, but also the golf course, right? So the arrival view at the tree farm, instead of this grand lobby, if I could just try to describe it in words, you're up on the ridge a little higher than one green, actually, and 18 is down below. You can't see it. In the building, you're on the north side. It's actually quite stark to your arrival, the building itself. But there's a dog trot breezeway that frames like perfectly the first view or the first green, a view of the first green. And so when you arrive, the sort of architecture itself is saying, like, look at that you know, and I'm here to support that and frame that. And really it's about that, the golf, you know? So it was, it was crucial to the thinking, just the overlap between that. And it was, it was awesome to work with Kai and Tom. And I I remember meeting Kai out there when they were finalizing the routing and he kind of asked, Oh, do you do a lot of work on sites, you know, as nice as this? And I was like, no way, man, I live in Houston. Like nothing is sacred here. And (laughs) here we are in like a idyllic pine forest, sandy landscape, you know, this is the dream. And then he sort of said something interesting where he was like, I don't know if I've ever met one of the building architects on a project I've worked on. And I was like, how is there not this like rich intertwining collaboration, you know, and maybe Tom had met them or something, but, and if, if you look at most clubhouses, I think by most, you know, that's a broad generalization, but there isn't much collaboration, right. But there is a rich history of it. Like Wingfoot, there was a strong collaboration between Tillinghouse and the architect. And so it's sort of carrying on that tradition, right. Yeah. Well, I, I'm thinking about some of the ways in which clubhouse buildings can be place-based, and the tree farm is the example we're working with right now. You've said a few things about the landscape of the tree farm. So maybe just make a couple of connections for me between that landscape, that specific kind of biome, and the shapes that you created in the buildings, you know, one way in which golf architects can make a golf course blend with the environment is to make the artificial shapes look like natural shapes or, or have some kind of interface between, you know, the aesthetics, the way that things are, are shaped and and the way that things in the environment are naturally shaped. So that's one way. And I guess another way would be materials in the building, like the kinds of wood and, and stuff like that. So, Maybe speak to some of those links. What? Uh, how did you try to make everything that you were building in the buildings match with the environment? Yeah, great point. And I think for us as architects, we often look at things like form, uh, material, scale, climate, you know, all those things play into it. So for example, gables shed water well. You don't need a gable in the desert. That's why you see flat roofs in the desert. There's no rain. So there's like looking at all these things um, when it comes to landscape and region. So at the tree farm, a few things that come to mind, just the simple sort of vernacular gable shapes from barns to houses to sawmills, things like that. You know, it's called the tree farm. It's pretty uh, direct connection there. The siding is actually going to be a cedar. Uh, just because performance wise, it holds up better than pine as an exterior siding, but there is a resonance there, right? Obviously wood and wood, we're not importing like some Italian travertine stones and things like that, right? We're like using 
materials that resonate with the place and the siding will be stained to be this sort of dark patina that, you know, cliche, but resonates with sort of pine tree bark or something. And the buildings, you know, that's a, that's a specific choice though, to sort of like try to make them fade into the background, right? Instead of painting them white, you know, we have Augusta National down the road. We could have said, oh, let's build Augusta National's clubhouse, but it was, it wasn't about that, right? It was, it was about sort of making them fade into the background. Uh, the site was mined a bit and used as a dump site at one point for clay and brick mining. So there's a rich history of brick in the Carolinas, of course, especially as walkways. And so we are leaning into that. There are no real hallways in the project. We tried to minimize hallway square footage. And so all the circulation is outside under these deep overhangs, which is a hot, humid regional thing. So that's material form. I'm trying to think of what else. Oh, in the cabins themselves, there'll be four on-site cabins in phase one. And it actually is quite funny. I found in Aiken, there's a huge horse culture, right? So uh, horse races and horse breeding and with horses come stables. And not to say that the cabins are stables, but there's a very similar scale building in terms of width and shape. They're little L's or J's now, the cabins and their exterior walkways, and you go directly into a room and that's very much like essentially a stable, right? It's like these really simple buildings that have exterior circulation and the horses go straight into their room. So I'm not making comparison between members and guests and horses, but you know, <laughs> it is it is a uh, it is a scale of building and a sort of plan shape and even a functional functionality way that resonates with that and it it won't come to mind necessarily because you know it's not you know not to throw shade but like say forest creek they're famous for their locker room and it is like screaming at you i am a stable like each of the little areas has the whole horse like things and all that and like these fake barn doors and you know we're not doing any of that uh, we're not yelling at you, I am a stable, but it's like, hopefully you sort of understand and it just feels of the place because those buildings exist in the region. So it's more, it's more of a hint than an yeah. uh, exact illusion, I guess. Um, right. Because it's uh, not about yeah. appropriating something that isn't what it is meant to be, right? Like architecture buildings come out of a time, a place, a culture, a construction technology, and a specific need, right? And so to just imitate is sort of to cheat it, in my opinion. And so, but but it doesn't mean we can't look at history and, you know, both the history of our discipline as well as the history of, you know, everything and mine sort of that richness for ways to resonate with it. So something that you've mentioned a couple of times is that it's fairly rare for a building architect to be interested in golf or to be interested in golf course architecture. And that may be part of the reason why somebody like Kai hasn't really met a clubhouse architect on, on a project because often those disciplines are really different and they're kind of aloof from each other just by the nature of what the disciplines are and who the people are. I'm not really sure of the causes, in fact. So what what do you think creates that divide between the larger architecture world, whether it's landscape architecture or building architecture or whatever, and golf course architecture? Yeah, that's a good question and a difficult one. 
And that may be a false generalization, but it's been my experience both in school and in the professional world. Like, Sure. I mean, uh, and this is something that I've heard elsewhere, too. This is not the first time I've heard someone in in the business of architecture allude to a bit of a an awkwardness or a gap between the practice of golf architecture and, and other kinds of design and architecture. Yeah, it's funny, like, because I don't e- I don't even know, and this is speaking to my, you know, lack of lack of knowledge, but like if you have to go to landscape architecture school to become a building architect, I, I don't know. I don't know how many have done that. I know you could do it, but I know that in my experience with schools, if you went to the landscape architecture program and said, I want to design golf courses, you wouldn't get studios that let you do that you would design parks and public spaces and you know other things and then you could maybe design golf courses after you graduated but i don't know of any schools that are sort of doing that in practice um and that's how our schooling works right like i had five years 10 semesters 10 design studios and you essentially design a building every semester um and landscape is the same. And I never saw a single golf course project, you know, but I can tell you what I did see at UT, which was um, master planning and urban design projects that were rethinking what Lyons Municipal could be. If not a golf course, this is super valuable land. How can we develop it? In hindsight, I sort of wish I had taken the studio and said, you guys should hire Bill and Ben to just restore it. And I don't want to do anything to it, you know, but um, that's not the the view I would say in most schools. And I think that speaks to something which is like the like really surface level understanding of golf and maybe it's golf in America specifically where it's something that is upper class, it's private, it's inefficient use of land uh, in a time of people moving to cities and density, right? Like the surface level understanding and the current American model that's dominating the golf landscape is either real estate development or private club or both. And so I think that that has led to sort of a disdain within architecture itself for the typology of a golf course. And then, you know, there are sustainability questions at a surface level understanding of it too. It's like super inefficient use of water, right? What's the golf course that most people know that don't follow golf much? Augusta National, I would say, right? Which is that's how we got some bad golf development is looking at that and saying, this is what every place needs to be. And that's just not the case, right? Like the masters in Augusta, obviously unbelievable, but like, again, specific for one time place and sort of event, right? It's not that that needs to be imitated everywhere, but people who don't know golf deeply would probably think that and say, that's an unrealistic expectation. What a waste of resources, land, et cetera. Yeah, because I'm not interested in building something like Augusta National, I'm not interested in golf at all. It's also super time consuming to play. It's hard. The barrier to entry is high. You know, as architects, we don't have a lot of time usually. Not uh I I um uh, I'm happy to marry my professional and professional life and hobby so that I can do more golfing, which has been great. Um <laughs> but I mean, you know, there are a lot of barriers to golf and I would say a lot of the ones that are normal, you know, for non-architects are probably also barriers for architects themselves. And and those are all understandable, but it's not hard to see how this divide between the larger profession of architecture and 
golf courses and golf course architecture might create some problems if a building architect is hired to build a clubhouse, right? Because if the building architect is not at all interested in the golf, then that might create some issues with the design of the clubhouse. And is that something that you've seen without being specific about particular clubhouses? Do you often see clubhouses that just don't seem to be related to the golf course at all and therefore feel kind of alienated from it? Yeah, I would say yes. You know, and I think anybody who's listening to this can probably think back to your let's say very typical golf course development and it probably doesn't have a clubhouse that's super resonant and talking to the golf maybe it has a patio that overlooks the 18th but it's probably pretty far away uh it's not as close as the old clubhouses that really nailed this kind of thing like wingfoot or pinehurst right those were built in a different era and so with modern construction has come complications with modern real estate development, with modern development in general, right? Where um, you don't necessarily want to mix the two because it costs more and it's more complicated, right? There's sort of this surface level relationship, I think, that you see in most, which is just a view, right? And that's that's great to provide, but it doesn't begin and end there, right? The scale of it actually matters how far away you are. What can you actually see? You know, is it a vista or can you see putts go in? Just that kind of thing. And then I'd say, yeah, the other really difficult thing is like parking and um, just all the infrastructure that even I starting this journey with Zach was like totally unaware of how difficult it would be to get a clubhouse like within 40 feet of the 18th green you know it's like (laughs) it's it's not easy and in hindsight i'm thinking okay now i i definitely get why not a lot of people try this but i think you know hopefully it pays off uh in the actual experience of the place in the long run this episode of the fried egg podcast is brought to you by usga memberships we all know the usga for things like championships rules and handicapping but they are also the biggest investor in golf's future. They do this through programs that help courses manage fuel, water, and other resources, that expand junior golf, and that make sure all communities have access to golf and feel welcome to play. This is really important work, and none of it would be possible without the support of USGA members. When you join the USGA, you not only leave a positive impact on the game you love, but you also get great benefits. Benefits like a members-only hat, a copy of the Rules of Golf, and a subscription to the Golf Journal. To join, all you have to do is visit usga.org join. And since it's the holiday season, you should know that you can give a USGA membership as a gift. It's pretty simple. Just go to usga.org join and click the button that says gift. All right, back to the episode. All right, Alex. So before we talked, I asked you to come up with a few different buildings that we could talk about as examples of interesting architecture. And maybe we could start with buildings that are not golf clubhouses, just buildings that are in cities that people might be able to go to and visit and look at and and get something out of. So what's the first building that you came up with that kind of fits this description? Yeah, I'll say none of these are golf-related. I tried to pick a few major American cities, and essentially, if I were visiting, what I would go see. It's interesting. There will be a lot of museums listed, I think. It's like a popular typology where world-class architects are hired, right, to um, design things. So 
Um, I'll start with Houston, where I live. If you come visit, uh, you have to go to the Manil Collection, which is a masterpiece little museum open to the public and free, uh, designed by Renzo Piano. He's an Italian architect who runs Renzo Piano Building Workshop, and he's a He's in the category of what we would call in the industry starkitects, you know. So all the way at the top, <laughs> the top. I haven't like, heard that before. Yeah. So he's does a that mean like really bare bones, like really stark? That that's what that's nope, what it means. Nope. Nope. Oh, think okay. movie. Think movie star. Think. Uh, oh, starkitect. Oh, oh, yeah. oh, oh, I see. Okay. So essentially, <laughs> the list of the top. Five, ten people in the world who always get the phone call for extremely high-profile projects. But I see. Okay. Okay. So, um, so the, essentially, the Tom Doak, the David McClay yes, kid, the Corn exactly Shaw right. of exactly the building right. architecture world. Yeah. Okay. That's exactly. I'm going right. to start calling them star architects now. You should those, do it. Uh, those golf architects. The golf don't tell them it came from me. I don't know. Okay. <laughs> I won't. They won't. They won't like that at all. None of them will like that. <laughs> I I I figured. So don't. It didn't. It didn't come from me. This is only buildings that I'm talking about. Um. So, but Renzo Piano, now a star architect, you know, it was popular when he did the Manila collection, but it's a very early piece of his work. I think it was completed in '93. Um, and it's just an amazing museum and it has amazing modulation of light. So all the gallery ceilings are glass, uh, but there's this intricate sort of louver system that lets natural light in. The building is in a neighborhood and it's like perfectly to scale, but perfectly sort of grand at the same time. Like it's not a home, but it's part of it, you know, part of the neighborhood. So that that's just a must visit if you're in Houston. Uh, Fort Worth, though, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention the, the Kimball Museum, which is designed by Lou Kahn. He's one of the greatest American architects to ever live. And again, modulating light actually through these cycloidal vaults that are these cast concrete vaulted spaces. And um, just like maybe the best building in Texas. It's so wonderful. Okay, so now I have Chicago, which is a massive black mark on my resume because I have never been. First one that comes to mind is Roby House, which is a Frank Lloyd Wright masterpiece residence. Um, it's just like sort of height of uh, Frank's work in terms of residential architecture. Um, and it's a simple sort of brick home, long, low slung, just like beautiful uh, example of his like organic prairie style and organic he was thinking about resonant with landscape in general not organic when we think of it as like blobby shapes or things like that uh oh here's a good one sorry this is for the shotgun start guys uh the apple store on michigan avenue is designed by norman foster who is also a star architect who designed the global home so for the PGA oh, tour yeah there so, you go does this one have a moat it, there's no moat um, okay. but Foster, honestly, Foster, really good architect, huge firm in London. Um, I would say star architect, really clean work and does a lot of Apple stores. So Apple store on Michigan Avenue. That's a good one. Okay. We'll go to New York, a landscape. One place that I would really love to go is little Island recently opened. It's like a pier. I forget which pier number and designed by Heatherwick studio, who is an interesting guy who is more of like a designer and has a studio not limited to architecture. So art, public installations, objects, architecture, things like that. And this is like a really, you know, everyone can just Google Little Island and you'll be like, whoa, that's pretty wild. Um, it's sort of this like pier that rises out of the water and each of the like pier pylons sort of turns into almost like a 
like a flowering shape that holds landscape in it and they're all linked together and it's quite quite amazing and then one really fun one that everybody can visit prospect park skating rink designed by todd williams and billy chen really great husband and wife duo doing really great work and it's like a very fun building it's a roller skating rink in the summer and an ice skating rink in the winter nice la the eames foundation which is actually the home of charles and ray eames great designers um known for their furniture a lot, uh, like the Eames chair, which is a classic lounge furniture. So you can think mid-century, modern, modular kind of home. And I believe it's open to the public. San Francisco, the de Young Museum, designed by Herzog and Dimeron, really great Swiss architecture firm. Um, some of the best in the world, again, architects. Everyone will, a lot of people will know them for the bird's nest in Beijing, which was the main stadium at the Olympics in 2008 or something, I think. Um, but really just amazing for Herzog and Dimeron. And then my last stop is Austin, Texas. And I'm going like pretty local here. So a very uh, small architecture firm that I know. And there's a Peace Park treehouse. It's in Peace Park, which is on Lamar West side of campus. And they designed this little almost like playground structure that's just a little treehouse for kids, for adults, um, and it's by Mel Lawrence Architects. It's just like a really wonderful, playful piece of architecture in a park that anybody can use, and it's you know thinking at a very high level, um, and it's it's just beautiful. Nice, I love that. You know, maybe more importantly, if somebody, if a golfer who may know something about golf course architecture, goes to one of these buildings, what should they be noticing? And I know that's like a, a super complicated question when people ask me that question about golf courses. What should I be noticing and appreciating when I'm trying to understand golf course architecture? I never know where to start, but I have a few basic things, you know, standing on the greens and looking back at the hole and trying to figure out the strategy from there and seeing if it fits. Looking at the tie-ins between the artificial shapes of the golf course and the natural shapes of the surroundings and seeing how those are working. Those kinds of specific things I often tell people, you know, that's where to start when you want to appreciate a golf course and the way it's designed. So what are some similar things people should do if they're going to a great building? What should they be noticing? Let's start with tie-ins. So looking at it and saying, is this responding to place in a way that the forms are similar or is this like building operating outside of its context. So is its context influential or is it an object? You know, is it part of the fabric or is it a statement, right? Uh, and sometimes it does both. Uh, say the Aqua Tower in Chicago that I talked about, that's responding to its wind context, right? But at the same time, it's creating something that is quite a statement. Um, so I would think about that and kind of ask yourself what the building is trying to convey to you. Um, is it about being grand or is it about you know like essentially a golf club in the same way like what is this course what is the philosophy does it feel fabricated does it feel natural um things like that and then there's a lot of overlap within golf course architecture just thinking about scale thinking about how it's made thinking about threshold ideas about threshold ideas of flow like a good routing what is the flow of the space a good one to always think about is like natural light. A lot of like great buildings deal with natural light in a really great way. Um, and a lot of bad buildings don't. 
And then, you know, I would say, does the building feel in terms of like style, if you want to think about it like that, is it telling you that it is something? It is, is it a certain style and why? Or is it not a certain style and therefore what is it trying to be? That's like the way that I would think about it. And then I, you, you said something that made me think of something else, but now I'm blanking. So I don't know, maybe you have a follow-up. Well, I talked about tie-ins and I talked about standing on greens and looking at strategy and seeing how. Oh, yeah. So my version of standing on greens would be like, it's it's very different. It's not about figuring out strategy but one right. of the funny that, that's things, something that's unique about golf course architecture by the way something that sets it apart is that this is a this is a game board in addition to being a piece of sculpture or a piece of art and that's something that kind of sets golf course architecture apart from most forms of architecture it's something i've often often thought of but uh, i don't want to interrupt your train of thought what, oh, no. what did the standing on greens make you think of it just made me think of like one of the things that immediately makes me th- notice that a building might be really dialed and cared for is like, what does your hand touch first? So all the way down from these big moves of like, is it an object in a landscape? Is it an object in a city? You know, you can think about that scale, but like down to the detail of like, what is the door handle? How does the door move? And if you notice like, a lot of really good architects and a lot of really good buildings, it's not your sort of standard introduction to a building. So say Stephen Hall, who is a star architect and has unlimited budgets, essentially, every entry door handle essentially is always a one-off sort of designed object that is a riff on sort of the formal qualities or the diagram of the building, right? And so it's like that level of care and design can carry its way all the way down to a door handle, right? And whether that's a simple door handle and it's about materiality and patina, or if it's a overly designed expensive door handle, that's sort of a cliche in architecture school is to think about the door handles. Huh. I love that. I wonder what the equivalent in golf courses is. It's like the, the extreme level of detail, you know, what are, what are, what are the individual, maybe, maybe. I don't know if architects have any role in those. Yeah, but that's about, but I mean, speaking to Zach and back to the tree farm, like we're crafting everything, right? Like right. it's it, the the golf course architect may not have a say in that, but like all of those things, and you've talked about this, I think uh, previously, it's like the benches, the signs, the flags, all those are like designed objects that contribute to a feeling of place, right? And so whether that's something that's just picked up off the rack or it's like shaped and designed, all of that is, is contributing to the overall experience. Absolutely. And I understand that not all golf courses have the budget to be as craft focused on everything that they have on the golf course. And that that's, you know, partly the uh, result of, uh, you know, having a good budget that you can uh, pay attention to some of those things. And in other cases, it might be just as cheap to do something lazily as it is to do something a little more thoughtfully. But something that drives me crazy sometimes on golf courses, aside from the cart paths, which I don't know why people aren't thinking through where they're putting cart paths or how they look. It's just such a, a dominant feature of many golf courses. But a, a little thing is like the ball washers. Mm. You know, <laughs> it always, everybody has the same ball washers. 
And they're just like studded throughout the golf course. And I'm like, do we need all of these? Is this necessary? Can there be a different way that people kind of uh, have this function, you know, clean their golf balls? That's just a little thing that sometimes strikes me as like, maybe that could be thought through a little bit more. Well, and if I could, that's like a system or a supporting like infrastructure. So the other, another thing to look at in really good buildings is like, try to find the systems. Where's the air coming from? How are the lights designed? What's this is like drainage in a golf course. Yeah. It's the drainage. It's the catch basins. Where are the units? Are they like, you know, and I would say a lot of the time, these things are really lazily done and, you know, people operating at a very high level, like we're drawing every, everything and trying to minimize the impact of the systems. And, you know, I don't have to tie it back to clubhouses, but that's been like the really, like the hardest thing about the tree farm is trying to design like a quite a robust commercial building at the end of the day into a residential scale project. That's like quite intimate and small, but at the same time, it's a commercial building that ha- needs commercial grade materials, commercial grade systems. It has a full, nice restaurant. It's a retail shop. You know, it has all these things. And so the clubhouse is something that is kind of like uh, a tricky one where you're trying to do a commercial building in, uh, in a residential sort of scale and context. And that's not true for all clubhouses. Some are not trying to be residential and they shouldn't be. But systems is a good one to look at. So something that's really interesting about how you have made your way through your career and your interests is that I believe you were interested in building architecture before you were interested in golf course architecture. You played golf, but you weren't necessarily connecting your longtime interest in architecture with golf course architecture. And so you have kind of a unique perspective on what building architecture can bring to golf course architecture, what kind of knowing a thing or two about the way that buildings are designed can make you notice when you're on a golf course. So what are just like a couple of things that you think that an appreciation of building architecture can add to an appreciation of golf course architecture? Hmm. My unique perspective is just seeing both sides almost. And what I would hope that people are getting out of the podcast is that a lot of the same thinking on golf courses can be applied to buildings. And so you take that and you think about the way that, as we say, verticals, uh, buildings instead of landscape, like they contribute or are talking to the experience at the golf course, but also take that home with you, you know, and it's not realistic and even i don't live in a home that i designed and it's like you know you we can't all have like perfect architecture all the time but you can take this knowledge and sort of look at the built environment that you live and work in and visit and sort of start to i would just challenge people to like apply their golf course architecture hobby chops to buildings and see where they get and see like there's a rich, rich culture right now, right. Of appreciating golf course architecture. And, you know, we maybe live in the echo chamber of that being on a podcast about golf course architecture essentially, but, and there is a culture of that on buildings as well. And so, but there isn't a lot of overlap and I don't see why not. And not to say that everyone has to be interested in everything, right. There's a subculture for everything, but my hope would be that some people just start to see uh, the built environment, like they see golf courses and start to care for it more and understand that it's also crafted. I don't think that's an answer to your actual question, 
but I, I think that's a that's a great way to answer it because what you're saying essentially is take it the other way too. You know, you went from building architecture to golf course architecture. People listening to this podcast are likely to be a little bit into golf course architecture at least. And, you know, when that part of your brain is turned on at a golf course where you're, where you're trying to understand something or enjoy something about the built environment that you find yourself in, there's no reason not to take that to the next airport that you land in. There are a lot of airports that are beautifully built. Yes. That just have these sort of outrageously fun shapes and, and kind of ideas in them, but people rarely are looking at them. They're, they're at an airport. They're getting to their flight. And so, you know, just as golf course architecture can add a different dimension to your golf life, I think that being attuned to all forms of architecture as you're just walking through the world can give you something to think about when you're bored, which is always good. <laughs> yeah, that would be great. If I could make two book recommendations really quickly sure. that yeah, may, may be better at answering this question than I am or just doing it. Very on the nose, there's a book, Thinking Architecture, uh, written by Peter Zumthor, who is a Pritzker Prize winning architect in Switzerland. He's That's the highest award in architecture, star architect, total star architect. Um, most of his work is in Europe, but it's a really simple book, really short. I give it to a lot of people who are thinking about architecture for the first time, super approachable, super readable. Um, so that's like number one on my list. And he has a second book called Atmospheres, which is essentially just discussing how the built environment creates atmospheres, which golf courses do the same. They're part of the built environment. So those are my main two book recommendations from the same author. <laughs> Excellent. Well, that's a good place to wrap up. Alex, thank you so much for your time today and good luck uh, with your future architecture. I, I hope to see more clubhouses from you, but I'm, uh, I'm looking forward to, to watching your career as it goes along. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. It was a great, great discussion and really cool to be, you know, full circle to learning about Zach essentially to now working towards completing the project and coming on the pod. So thanks a lot, Gary. This episode of the Fried Egg Podcast was edited by Meg Atkins. If you've been enjoying the pod, please leave a rating and review in iTunes. We always like hearing people's thoughts and feedback. And also those ratings and reviews are a big way that we find new listeners. All right. Thanks for listening. And we'll be back soon.